Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Business of Film. My name is Jesse Eichmann, and you're listening to a crafttruck.com podcast. This is episode number 73, and uh, on this episode, we've got uh, a longtime friend and, uh, and colleague, uh, Mark Myers, on with us today. Mark is a uh, writer, director, and uh, also a producer. Uh, of his latest film, uh, How He Fell in Love. Uh, the film premiered at the Los Angeles uh, International Film Festival uh, a couple weeks ago, and I'm just happy to have him on with us today so that he could share his experiences about how he went about making the film, uh, casting the film, going about getting distribution and the distribution strategies for this film. Uh, the film stars Matt McGorry, uh, which I'm sure many of our listeners know uh, Matt from Orange is the New Black, and uh, Amy Hargraves, uh, a very talented uh, actress who was in uh, not only Michael Clayton, uh, which is a personal favorite of mine, uh, but Shame and uh, and Blue Ruin a couple years ago, and and uh, she's she's getting some really great praise for uh, for the project. So, uh, oh, and one other thing, which is uh, super cool and definitely worth mentioning, uh, at the end of the podcast, we talk about another really cool thing that happened to Mark this year, which is that his uh, latest screenplay that he wrote got nominated for uh, the blacklist and is on the blacklist. Uh, so we talk about that and what that me- meant and means for Mark and his career. So I am happy to have him on with us. Uh, thank you everybody for listening. If you're digging the pod, please leave us a uh, comment and uh, a star or two on iTunes. Uh, always very helpful. And of course, you can find us on Twitter at Craft Truck. And we just thank you for uh, for listening and uh, and sharing the podcast, with folks. So thanks so much, everybody. And here we go on with the show with Mark Myers. Thank you for for coming on the show. Uh, Mark has been you have been I, I I just referred to you in the third person. Mark, you have been a longtime friend. I mean, we we were just talking before I pushed record here. Uh, our, I guess, history in the film business together goes back now, well, more than a decade, I think. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, well, thanks for having me on. And um, I think we first met at the Toronto Film Festival over a decade when I used to work at uh, Variety. And uh, not as a reporter, but on a sales side. And somehow we had gotten connected and gotten together then. And so we've stayed in touch ever since, I think. Yeah, and you, I mean, somewhere along the line, you, you made this decision, and I, uh, I want to talk to you about this, I think, this, this really this very critical, creative, and, and important decision that you made was you, you kind of transitioned yourself out of, I guess, daily, the, the daily workforce, as it were, into more of a creative life, and, and I think that was the first one that you made, approaching Union Station, is that right? Like, right, right, right around that time was when you kind of made this... Big creative decision. Approaching, yeah, approaching Union Square. Well, I was sorry. Approaching Union Square, I said station. Yes, square. Right. Yes, right. There was an, you know, Indian. We had our international premiere at the Montreal World Film Festival, and that was um, a nice way to start that our first film together. And I, my wife at the time, we were dating, and we decided to take one of my um, plays because I used to originally be a playwright and then I would work during the day in various film-related companies. And so I've always been aiming towards what I'm doing now. It's just that the time, you know, I was writing more plays and we took this 
this show of monologues that I had run that ran for about six months in downtown New York, and we turned it into that first film. But I guess I was always simultaneously doing both, either writing screenplays, but, you know, sort of working during the day. And, and, and it just, it, it's a lot. Your mind can't do both and do both well. And so there were times where I'd just, like, look at my desk at home and be like, God, I haven't re- you know, written in two weeks. I've just been so busy. But, did, did you know, you, eventually you just sort of, yeah. yeah did, you, did you have, like, a daily practice of just, just being able to, I mean, I, I mean that's that, that's really an important kind of question because a lot of people do hold day jobs, day jobs, and at the same time, uh, not to be negative or disparaging about that at all. Everybody's got a day job, but I mean, a lot of people yeah. hold the quote unquote day job and at the same time pursue their creative passions. Did, how did you manage that? Well, just, I still consider it still a day job. It's just that what I'm doing is a lot more rooted in who I am than what that was. But I needed to go through those 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 steps I guess to one learn about the film business to to even learn about filmmaking in general like I learned how to make a movie because I worked at the IFP fundraising and I used to sell booths and advertising and sponsorship to all the companies that would come to this thing called the IFFM which was before the IFP market it would be original um, market in New York for independent film that would be at the Angelica and so I would visit all of these facilities and they would show me their labs and mm-hmm. they would show me their optical house and I would talk to the insurance agents and I started to piece together from a producer standpoint all the different kind of companies that contributed to making a movie. And so by the time I had met my wife and we wanted to make my our, our first film together after I made some shorts and she had been working already in um, television at the time, we were able to just call upon relationships that we had been developing naturally through working over the last, you know, previous years. And that helped us sort of finish our first feature. And through the effort of experience, just doing it, did we sort of improve upon our skills as producers and for me as a, as a writer director, just through the experience. Cause I didn't go to film school. So I sort of learned everything just kind of bouncing around New York, I guess. Let me ask you this question because this is, this is something that that comes up a lot uh, in conversation and with people that we've had on the show as well. How important or how much credence do you put into the idea that somebody should be making short films before they venture into making, say, their first feature film? Do you have an opinion on kind of the uh, of, of the value of the short film? Yeah, well, I maybe I can equate it to how I figured it out first in playwriting. I felt that I first needed to write some really good one-act plays and go, okay, I can keep the audience interested for 10 minutes. Okay, I can do another one, keep them interested for 25. And I started to grow up and then figure out that essentially a full-length play was, depending on how you look at it, it was, it was really five one-acts strung together mm-hmm. each sort of with the same characters generally and that's you know that's Shakespeare's five acts it's the same thing and so by doing that in plays I think I got better writing full-length plays and when I transitioned more to what I naturally should be doing which is you know writing scripts and 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 film it's the same sort of thing so I think if you're you're already committed fully 
to like wanting to make movies, there's some real value in making some shorts, which is less risk, less money, less of everything, and going, okay, I can make 10 minutes work. And then, you know, and then you're not like down, living in a van down by the river at the end of it, because you've, you know, you haven't burnt yourself on a feature. And so you just can get better by doing it. And when I made my first short, it was on 35 millimeter, mm-hmm. and it was like 25 minutes, um, you know, there was no, you know, uh, everyone says this, but there was no YouTube or other ways where you could show your work. You right. really had to sort of find a film festival to sort of share it at. And I went through that sort of old school process of making a, a film on 35 millimeter and going through that entire workflow. And I learned a lot. And that film is good, but not great and didn't really do much for my career, but it did a lot for me personally to become a better filmmaker. And so, better than really losing the respect of a whole crew because you're asking them to be with you for, you know, 20 days and you don't know what you're doing. That, that, right. you don't want to be in that position. So it's good to just take one or two days and make a short and learn the process. So some people do it in yeah. film school. Some people just do it on their own, you know? Yeah. I, and I, I think, you know, there's, there's definitely value to just being, I mean, the, the, the analogy that I equate to it is almost like comedians, and it's the same thing. Comedians go out and they make their, you know, their five-minute set, then they go out and they figure out how to do a ten-minute set. And you, you basically said the same thing, but from the writing perspective, which I, I find really interesting. So this, the film that I obviously wanted to invite you on the show to talk about is your your most recent uh, endeavor, uh, How He Fell in Love. And just tell us a little bit about what the, what the film is about and the journey that you went on to, to get that film made. Okay, cool. Well, how he fell in love, um, it's basically a casual affair between a young musician and a married woman who it turns into an intimate and profound connection that threatens to derail their lives. And that's sort of the standard log line that we use at this point. But um, at, at the core of it is really about how these two people really fall in love. They just can't be together. But you uh, wanted to create a scenario where you were rooting for them because their heart's connected. Because they, um, as I sort of developed this sort of phrase on set with the two actors, it stars Matt McGorry, who you know from Orange New Black and How to Get Away with Murder, and Amy Hargraves, who's on Homeland and was in a wonderful indie called Blue Ruin, and he was in Shame. And, you know, these are wonderful, wonderful actors. When we were working together, it was also really about these two people finding their inner dork. It was like, let's create a film where you fall in love. And so the circumstances can't allow these two people to be together, but you're rooting for them, and they may very well end up together. And so that was sort of what I was exploring through the process of rewriting it, living a little bit, and also then going deeper into making the movie, I realized how much the movie is actually really about marriage. And that Matt McGorry's character, who is the sort of through line through the film, mm-hmm. is also the inciting incident into a marriage that he really disrupts. And so it allowed me to really explore what goes on beyond the walls of a marriage where Amy Hargraves' character is married to a man 20 years older than she is, and she's in her 40s, and now she's having an affair with a guy who's in his early 30s. And so there's a 
multi-generational thing going on too, but she's also dealing with a husband and they're dealing with this idea that they may want to adopt a child at this moment. And she's sort of ruining that by falling in love with this other guy. So uh, how long, because you were the writer and also the director uh, of the movie and I obviously producer as well. Uh, how long were you just in the creative process of developing the material before you decided it was ready to go out and try and uh, finance it and put it together? Well, uh, you know, I got a, over 10 years ago, I must've written the first draft. Oh, wow. And then, yeah, but then I, I realized I do this with a lot of scripts. I'll write them quickly and then put them away and don't finish them with the ex- expectation that I have to immediately share it with people or try to make it. It's just that writing in some regards, I, I read this somewhere and it really makes sense to me. It's kind of like an idea that you want to write is sort of like a, like some sort of scent in the wind and you kind of just want to like run with it for a while and get it down on paper before it passes. And then once it's on paper, you can just sort of come back to it later. So I literally had the intention, I'll just put it on the shelf for a little while and live a little bit and then pull it up again and look at it. And so, um, you know, it was, so I'm, I'm, I had, was on and off the shelf repeatedly, and my wife and I made two other features prior to that one, but I'd always, between those, pull it out and look at it again and rewrite it. And then after I was out of the edit room on Harvest, which is the movie I made with Robert Loggia before this one, I then could feel the sort of film language really much better, and I was like, <laughs> I have to go and rewrite How He Fell in Love, which at the time was called How I Fell in Love, and that was just because I thought it'd be fun to make a, you know, like a something that seemed like it was first person. But then everyone that I shared the script with was expecting it to be a comedy because of how I met your mother. So oh, that's also very said, interesting. Yeah. You yeah. know, just by sharing it, you sort of realize certain things you're taking for granted about the the script you, you have in your own sort of cocoon. And so um, we then... You know, I met this guy, I was swimming last, I was reconnecting with a guy I'd known for years, he was, what are you up to? And I explained I was trying to make this next movie, how, how he fell in love, I shared it with him. And he thought this actress that I'll just, you know, she's not in the movie now, but would be perfect for it. And I was like, well, that's funny because I um, was always thinking she'd be great for it. Can you give it to her? And so then she read it and loved it, and that led to us aligning with this actress and going around town and her agents and trying to share it and try to rally enthusiasm around her wanting to do this movie. And it just proved to be, you know, it just proved to be hard at the budget level that we thought it should be at. Okay, well, let's actually just, just, just take a, a pause there for, for, just, for just a sec because I, I want to I backtrack on, on that point. So okay. you, at what what point did you decide that the project was ready to actually show and go out? Like, how, how long ago was that? Like, was that like a year ago, two years ago? When did you decide and why did you decide that, okay, this is the next film I'm going to make. I want to go out and I want to get this 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 film made. Well, when I finished Harvest, so that was in 2010, so I started rewriting How He Fell in Love. So probably by the end of... 2010 to be in 2011 was around the time when it was like this is what we're this is the next what we have to try to make you know if something else surprises us in the meantime 
I can't control that, but this is the one that makes sense to my wife and I, um, who's my producing partner. I've mentioned that a couple times, but it's critical. Like we both have to sort of emotionally agree that this is the this is what we want to focus on next because you just have to sort of both be believers to be able to sort of bring it around. So hopefully that answers your question. It, was, it dates back to then, but, you know, sharing it with people, very easy for people to just read a script and say, I like it. It's another thing for people to stick their head out, take some risks and align with you to do something. And that, that I can't control. That's just you try to get it to people that you want to partner with. And we did meet, you know, actors or producers that really wanted to try to go elsewhere with it and try to get other people involved. So, okay, so just on that on that thought here, just because, I mean, this is this is some of the granular detail that I think it's easy to, to gloss over, but it's just so important to the process itself. So once you had made the decision, your wife and you, that this was going to be the next film that you wanted to pursue, who's the first person you called? What's the first thing that you did? Sharing the script with some friends that are also working in film and seeing if they responded to it. And some of them work at production companies or... um, you know, cable networks and and just started trying to gauge if there was any kind of enthusiasm because you kind of have this fantasy that somehow someone's going to read it, take it out of your hands and say, you know what, I think I can get a lot of money right now. We should go make this. You, you, you want to make it next summer. But that's not really always how it happens. Or, you know, at least it didn't happen with How He Found Love. The, you know, the end result is we realized we ended up making exactly the kind of movie size-wise that the script always was meant to be. And it's just that we needed to learn that by going around town and sort of seeing the challenges of people feeling like it's, you know, at that budget of saying it's over a million and all that kind of other stuff is, um, is wasn't the right fit for what the market is. You, you know, so, so it was also we, a crazy time economically. If you, you know, look back 2011, 2012, like, people were sort of still recovering from the downturn so well you were you were bringing out really uh, I mean did, did you have a vision of a certain budget in your mind like you wanted to make it at, at a certain level and then the market kind of and then you learned something from getting market feedback I mean what was the original yeah. kind of vision because I mean I, when I look at the film now I, I see a true indie uh, but was that always the intention to make it you know, within that kind of indie, real indie spirit, or was there, uh, or did somewhere along the line, did you just kind of get knocked off of one path and then put on another path that eventually got it made? Well, part of it is like, can we raise, find the, find an avenue where we can raise the money so that there's a real budget there so you can have more resources, more days, pay for bigger name actors, um, and, and, and solve problems with cash versus resourcefulness. So it's like, and also, you know, have enough of a budget that I can look at my line item as a producer, writer, director, and my wife as a producer and be like, okay, the movie, you know, can be our job for the next, you know, year and a half. And so when you try to, and there are a couple of relationships you have where you're going to sort of go down that road, but 
they they struggle to sort of find to connect the dots with whoever they're bringing it to. And so, you know, I'm looking back at thinking of some of the meetings we had in like lobbies of hotel rooms and various people that were going to present it in various rooms and things like that, or ourselves and try to connect with other producers who supposedly had financing. And in the end, just you just kind of realize, you know, I want to make a movie versus just talk about making a movie. Right. And then when my wife got pregnant, we realized we have to we have to just make it this year before we have our child. And so during the second trimester, we were on set, you know, filming it last, you know, April and May. So it just became an act of, all right, forget all of the other sort of things about waiting on, on possibilities that seem promising, but may or may not materialize and just like, connect all the dots. So it's kind of a blend of the things we knew to produce for Harvest in regards to infrastructure for a crew and the resourcefulness of doing something set in New York City that we did with our first one, which is approaching Union Square. And so um, at that point, we sort of, we used the indigent model as a guideline of saying everyone on the set gets paid the same amount of money, that's what it is. All the actors are hiring, have to live in New York so you can live at home. So all the money goes on screen. It's not going to hotel rooms and per diem and things like that. And started to just sort of retool the whole design of the, of the movie magic budget we had and all the other sort of things that we had created to sort of make it possible to actually just do it. And then, then by doing that, I had to, you know, last year find a new first AD who led me to um, his girlfriend, who was a UPM, and is a co-producer on the movie. We met another woman who's also a co-producer who solved a lot of the outstanding location issues that we hadn't figured out before we sort of triggered a, a real pre-production. But you know, at the top of last year, I was sort of going through the script with my wife and trying to isolate and figure out as many locations as possible on our own that we could develop relationships with so that we could just, you know, know where the film was going to be shot and solve that issue on our own. So, and then, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I want to dig into some of that, that stuff more, but, but just right at that critical juncture where you said, okay, I'm going to stop waiting for people to get back to me and I'm going to go make this movie, which I think is such a critical decision that any filmmaker has to make and and nowadays is more important than ever because you can it's what's and you are proof of that make that decision and make it happen but i want to ask you a question and i'm uh, and, and if you feel uncomfortable answering it uh, or it's you, you're not allowed to answer it for any legal reason then 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 no problem but but i i am curious what was the budget range? And just you don't have to give me the exact numbers. What was the budget range that you had initially idealized it at? And what is the budget range that it landed up being? We had idealized it probably at, um, God, I don't really remember, but under $2 million, you know. And that was based on like movies at the time that we thought were fair comparables that were success cases. So you know you're not necessarily listing all of the other movies made for the same budget that you never heard of, um, but you're using the best case scenarios of going look they made a movie in New York 
for this amount of money and a premiere here and sold for this and and so we felt like it was safe to sort of do it in the between one five and two. I don't really remember what that budget was. Okay, yeah. How many yeah. No, no, that's then, good, yeah. Yeah. And then the appropriate public answer is that we made a move for under a million. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair but we, yeah. Yeah. And look, I must say that, like, this is down the road, but one resourceful thing we figured out was one, I had the commitment of the same cinematographer from my previous film, and he was willing to bring his own camera and we would rent lenses. But then I pursued the Panavision New Filmmakers grant, and through some relationships that were connected to Panavision that helped the project get noticed, I was able to film um, this feature on the Alexa with a full suite of. Panavision lenses, and that didn't cost me any money. So the production value of what I put on screen is not connected to the amount of money that we raised and put towards the movie. Because of the kind of equipment that we're, I was able to um, bring to the film, I think is really important. No, I think that's you critical, know. in fact, because yeah. you know so much money I mean, you can spend on an Alexa package anywhere between on a full package anywhere between you know, even for low, low budget films I'm going to go venture and say anywhere between five to ten thousand dollars and that's fairly conservative um, but certainly if I was budgeting yeah. an indie film today I, I, I would venture to say yep yeah, five to ten grand a week will get me a, a, a decent enough package for pretty much any indie film um, but you know you're shooting the, the more, for, but, but then, the but then more of course you've got to add your, your grip and electric and everything and people to handle all that and all that yeah. kind of stuff yeah, but the more important thing is the lenses. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, I think there are, there there's tons of Alexas around. There's commercial cinematographers who own their own. But the lenses are the... Having not just like a film that you're shooting with two lenses, but having a real selection that is your, you know, your paintbrushes to really have these options of multiple wonderful glass really helps you do something special, I think, with the cinematography. What did you shoot on it? We, we shot on the Alexa with Panavision lenses. Oh, okay. Um, it was Panny lenses. lenses. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, and had everything from these long lenses and zooms to a macro lens. So, yeah. so talk to me about the casting process here, because this is obviously critical for any film that's going to get made it's, it's the the classic chicken and egg scenario uh, right. it sounds like you had already quote unquote greenlit the film and then got right. your actor and actress together is that yeah. kind of what happened there or right I'm dealing with it in a different way right now with another project but um, with that one it was returning to the same relationship with the same casting director Stephanie Holbrook who's based in New York and so she had cast my last film, and so we then, you know, you know, reengaged her, and we told her about the new approach, and that was after obviously trying to pursue attachments and wait for people to read the script, also get their actor attached, and all that that stuff that's very important. But um, so we then, you know, you have to go through some formal things, I think, with insurance and SAG and getting it all qualified appropriately so that SAG will allow you to put out a full casting breakdown. And then that allowed us to, you know, sort of get all kinds of submissions in. But at the same time, the casting director is already giving it to her relationships at the agencies and saying, please read this. There may be some people that you represent that could be, you know, good fits for this. Let's see if we can meet 
and find some common ground is essentially the goal. And through that, we had you know casting sessions on all of the main roles and and callbacks as well. And so um, Matt McGorry ended up he was filming the pilot in Philadelphia for How to Get Away with Murder, and he did his audition via Skype into the room between other auditions of people coming into the room and he was you know immediately a, a contender i thought he was a really interesting choice for the role of travis um between that that audition and when he came into the room later it was a, then had become a chemistry audition where we had already chosen um amy hargraves as uh the married woman ellen and so she then had a day where we had our sort of top picks of potential love interests to come through and do a bunch of scenes with her. And that was important because we had to not only find the both, both the aesthetic um, right choice for the film, but also a guy that she would be comfortable with given the subject matter where there's some sexy um, and even some naked scenarios mm -hmm. in the movie. It was important that we weren't just sort of like saying, you guys are working together. Like we really had to make it an organic thing. And... Matt McGorry was, from the outset, just very respectful of her, wanted to sort of know where where the scene would go because he was being considerate to her. And um, and that, and that you know, that resonated a lot on top of the fact that creatively I thought he was the right fit. So uh, there was another actor, I'll just add, I'll just yeah. add that was also very, very interesting to us, but I felt that he kept going off the script and doing other things that was interesting to everyone in the room. But I just sort of felt like, yeah, that's just going to be a pain in the butt for me in the edit room to try to stitch a scene together because he's just like going up, you know, he's just being interesting. And I wanted someone that was also respectful of the script. And Matt, Matt's just a true professional, so. So uh, just, just so... I guess from a contextual point of view, people get an idea of how long you were able to go out and shoot for in New York. Uh, how many weeks did you shoot for on on the on the film? Um, it was nineteen days around New York City, with a couple of days in upstate New York as well as part of that. Well, that's great. Um, I shot two Tuesdays through Saturdays because you. Don't, we didn't want to shoot six day weeks because that fries your crew out and then you lose morale with, you know, faster. So five day weeks so everyone could have a life and a weekend. But I wanted to shoot on Tuesdays, allowing Mondays to be a day that we had to figure anything else out. We had a day that was actual, a day where businesses were open to solve those problems. Oh, that's very smart. Also, well, thanks. And then also Saturdays allowed us for, it didn't always work this way, but if there were needs for having extras, at least it was easier to get other friends who were working to show up on a, on a weekend and ask them to sort of take off. So, gotcha. um, you, know, you know, overlapping in the weekend also was sort of a strategic scheduling thing that Jody and I had figured out from the beginning. So uh, at what point, just, just cause, um, I want to, I want to actually get to some of the other stuff, uh, also interesting stuff that's going on in your career right now, but just to, to just to wrap up the, the, this film, uh, the, the film had its premiere, if I'm not correct, uh, was it last week? Um, just, yeah, oh, 10 days ago, maybe, at oh. the Los Angeles Film Festival. Okay, first and, of all, con congratulations yeah. on that. I mean, that is, that's Thank awesome. Uh, how did that go? What was that like for you? Well, we had a, we had, 
a really strong response. I'm really um, happy with how well the, res- the film was received. And uh, we had sold out in large audiences. We had two screenings. And Matt and Amy and a bunch of the other cast and crew um, either were already living in L.A. or flew out from New York. And so we had a wonderful experience together, sort of creating a reunion for a lot of us. Um, and the reviews have been all really strong and um you know and it's the sort of first step towards it going out to you know hopefully a theater near you <laughs> so okay so let's yeah. let's actually just dive into just uh, for a few minutes just the this the sales side of the equation here in terms of just uh, distribution all that kind of stuff so you uh, uh, listed. I'm just. I'm reading off of IMDb here on this one. Listed as the sales representative is this company named Visit Films. Uh, could you just tell us how did you go about selecting the sales company that you wanted to handle the film? Now, and I don't know whether Visit's just taking uh, domestic U.S. or international, whatever it is. I'm just inter- interested to hear some of those details. And what was the uh, a quote unquote sales slash distribution strategy that you guys had? Uh, figured out would be the best way to optimize the re- the, re- the release of the film. Well, just like when you start sharing a script, you also in sharing a finished movie are kind of learning where you know where it's going to connect, right? With what companies or distributors and opportunities, and so we're at the very beginning of that stage right now, um, and. Visit had, um, um, with a lot of other um, international or domestic sales agents, had approached us uh, around the announcement that we were included in the U.S. fiction competition at the Los Angeles Film Festival. So um, you you have conversations with them either in person or over the phone and kind of just sort of see if you can meet aesthetically. And we really like his... Um, and. Ryan Campy and his team's faith in the movie and, and understanding of what it was. And it was also in the same world as a bunch of the other movies in his catalog of films that he's also representing and selling internationally. He just um, sold Krisha, who was in Critics Week at Cannes, um, to 84. And that's a, you know, that's a prestige indie that came out of South by Southwest. And... There, he has a nice kind kind of movie that um, are the kind of films I want to see. So um, it was a good it was a good fit, and we've known him for a couple of years. So it was a it was not a brand new relationship on top of it. Right, and, and yeah, you know, on the sales strategy side, did you guys discuss sort of what festivals you wanted? Like, because uh, I assume it was one of those things where it's okay. I'm going to focus on. A festival strategy first, and then kind of uh, move out from there. I, I'm I'm kind of guessing. Yeah, I think I think you know, there's a couple situations where movies at Sundance they will premiere, they get immediately bought, and then they play festivals as sort of a word of mouth situation leading up to their theatrical release. And in the same way, our movie has to do the same thing, which is play at a couple festivals to. Um, Build your audience and 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 gain more press, hopefully, and hopefully good press, and and just sort of bring it closer to distribution. And 
sometimes you do that in partnership with a distributor or sometimes you're doing that to sort of show distributors um, sort of what your movie's made of, you know, um, in front of an audience. Like our film plays really well in front of an audience and I think it also plays really well in a personal experience via a screener or, you know, eventually on Netflix when someone's laying in their bed and watching it on their iPad. So, uh, uh, and so the strategy is just starting. I will say that the, the alliance we had with visit was started right after can had ended. We had sort of finalized that. And, um, it's really nice to have someone else look at your movie and take it a little bit away from you to help you reposition how you describe it, what it's, strengths are and really sort of reprocess it through a different lens to help you bring it out to the public not just as the filmmakers and you're not always that fortunate but it it helps the movie to kind of be digested through other people's considerations yeah yeah for sure for sure yeah and so we're you know we're at that stage right now and I, I you know I Mass performance is, is, is wonderful and very understated. Um, I think a lot of attention will go to, at the same time, will go to Amy Hargraves because she's so brave and nuanced and, and, and goes to all these emotional places because of her character who's dealing with a marriage that she's cheating on and she's dealing with her husband and her lover. And so um, I think that'll be an interesting part of the journey of this movie is hopefully people come to really discover Amy and Matt. Yeah, yeah the the, uh, the call drop there for uh, for just a, a quick quick moment, uh, yeah. the, the perils of Skype every now and then, you know, call drops. But uh, no, listen, I wanted to say congratulations again on the film. I mean, How We Fell in Love just premiered at, uh, at the Los Angeles Film International Film Festival. And uh, I, I'm look for, looking forward to seeing it when it hits... Uh, or digital and or theater near you. Um, so just one last topic that I, I want to cover before we kind of wrap up this uh, uh, this episode of Business of Film is, and this is really a congratulations to you as well and your career, uh, I understand that you got a film on the blacklist this year. And I was just wondering if you could just kind of tell us a little bit about that project and, and just how that came to pass and, and what that means for you now. Because... Certainly, the blacklist is something that, uh, well, the industry talks about. So, just give us your give us your take on sort of what's happened to you and your project, and how the blacklist you feel is going to help your career. Um. Well, too much. Too to much. Know of, <laughs> too well, big no, a question. <laughs> Let me. Well, yeah, there are a couple of questions. Okay. Okay. So, first yeah. off. Tell, uh, in, in, in four parts. Part one, congratulations. Part two, what's the project about? <laughs> right, okay. So, so My Friend Dahmer is the, I wrote the uh, adaptation of the graphic novel, My Friend Dahmer, um, that is about the high school days of Jeffrey Dahmer before he committed his first murder. It was written, the graphic novel was written by a guy who actually grew up and was friends with Jeffrey Dahmer in high school. And um, he retells his experiences of being his friend um, during, you know, the late 70s. So it's a, it's a sort of a story of the making of a monster, the story before the story we all know 
about that serial killer. I had found a review copy of the book before it was on the market or had been reviewed when I had met the publishers at Comic-Con in New York. And I had already had the idea, which was something I was working on loosely, which was you know tr to try to write Portrait of a Serial Killer as a Young Boy. I had that sort of concept that it was, I was sketching out how I can do that. But it involved a lot of research to create a fictional, you know, serial killer as a young boy. And I also knew that graphic novels, naturalistic ones, would be interesting source material for myself. Um, and then I found this book and it was, it was connecting all the dots. So after, you know, you work out the option and all that stuff, mm -hmm. and I, I wrote it and rewrote it. Um, it eventually started to circulate. And then when people got enthusiastic about it, it organically... Um, worked its way onto the blacklist, which so, has led to part of me being represented. It's part of the reason I got represented, and you know, and and we're now working as a team to bring the financing to that. And so, so it's was, a very good role for a young male actor and his parents. So we're figuring that all out as we speak. Very, very cool. Now, was it a surprise to you when you were were? I guess nominated to be on the blacklist. Did that just kind of come out? Like, did you have any indication that that was going to happen, or you just woke up one day and like, holy shit, I'm on the blacklist? <laughs> I heard through some people that had read the script that it had been circulating, and other people uh, were receiving and liking it a lot. And then I think, I you know, I honestly was in the color correction on how he fell in love, getting texts that you know some other people read it and they really like it too, and it and. Um, and so it just it sort of happened organically and then you're not really sure you hear that they be on the blacklist and then when they do the announcement it's confirmation so um, that's my experience and I don't really know anyone else's experience and how, how and when they found out but it really was the day it was announced was the you know the day I, I knew it wasn't just a rumor right and uh, did you did your phone just start ringing right away afterwards I mean people are obviously interested in that kind of stuff I'm interested in that kind of stuff like what's the first thing that happened like good thing that happened after you were on the blacklist um you get you, yeah you get a lot a lot of people reach out you get a lot a lot of people that then start reading the script for their for their talent and I've met with a ton of wonderful actors that are um all great for potentially either Jeff Dahmer or some of the other kids that are, you know, in his posse of, of you know, cohorts. And um, and then a bunch of adult roles as well. And then, and then you start meeting people that say they have money, too. <laughs> so just, so it, it, I think it just, it was a jetpack for the project, I think is the best way to right. help it, it, you know. Um, hey, I'm not calling you from set, so I'm not yet there, but I'm getting closer. <laughs> well, I think this is going to be a really interesting uh, story to, to track and experience, and I, I would certainly love to have a reboot of this conversation a year from now and yeah. deconstruct the, 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 the year of what happened after this project was nominated. I mean, that, that's always a really interesting story. But, but in the interim, I, I hope that that 
that conversation that we do have is 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 one where it is from set. So, uh, and yeah. you and and you've made it there. So I just again congratulations on all your success this year. Just it sounds like you've had a, a really a kick ass year. Thank you for taking the time to come on the show. And if if people want to connect with you uh, or find your film, uh, what is the best way for them to uh, to go about doing that? Well, I'm um, I'm on Twitter, um, Mar- you know, Mark My at Mark Myers. It's M A R C M E Y E R S, and then through there you can also find the film also on Twitter, where you can then connect to our actors as well. That's at How He Fell in Love, and that same handle is also for Instagram and for Facebook. You know, How He Fell in Love. And we try to make all of the social media sites not really just say the same things. So, great. You know, hey, man! Congratulations again. This has been awesome. I just, uh, I think there's just a ton of really, really useful information here um, to our audience. Uh, I hope you dig this this podcast, and uh, it'll be episode number seventy three. So you can find it at Craft Truck dot com forward slash bof seventy three where we'll just put up some links there to uh, to find Mark and uh, and his film and uh, Mark thanks again for for taking the time in thank you Jesse it was really nice to reconnect. <laughs>